Today on Ag News Daily. When we have these clashing of air masses and we see all of this rain on top of all the rain we saw last month, it sets us up to, to have some issues, obviously, right? Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Mike Pearson here. Glad to be back with you. But Delaney, you did a fantastic job holding down the fort yesterday. How you doing today? Thanks, Mike. I am doing pretty good. Well, good. I am glad to hear it. It is uh, definitely cooled off again a mm-hmm. little bit after the 84-degree uh, weather. But I suppose we don't want to talk too much about weather during this part of the show because we'll be having that discussion a little bit later on, won't we? That's right. I caught up with Ed Valley of Valley Weather Consulting, and we're going to talk about weather affecting producers not only this year, but also into the winter, spring, and summer of 2019, as well as international weather and what Ed sees on the horizon. Well, Delaney, not to to do a spoiler or spoiler alert type of thing, but are we going to see the sun again here before January? Uh, it's not sounding super promising at the moment. I think we're in a <laughs> I think we're in a pattern of wet weather. Although he All did right. say we would. Well, I'm not going to give too much away. Just stay Perfect. tuned and listen for yourself. Absolutely, folks. Stay tuned and listen in. Well, before we get to Ed, let's jump on down into the news of the world of agriculture. And I've got another update here from our friend, Trade Commissioner Cecilia Malmstrom of the European Union. She said that still the EU has not yet even begun, quote, pre-work towards a transatlantic trade agreement on industrial goods. As of right now, they have done nothing to avoid a tariff war with the U.S. And uh, she said this in front of a meeting of EU trade ministers, which I assume means from the different countries. She Mm -hmm. represents the EU, and they were coming from all different countries. She said, we are currently not negotiating anything with the U.S. The pre-work on a possible trade agreement on industrial goods really hasn't started yet. We are focusing now on the regulatory cooperation part. So, you know, more trade news, not exactly bad news, but certainly not good news, given the uh, the week of Chorus and India looking for a free trade deal and NAFTA 2.0 getting signed. But, you know, at least it's not a trade war getting underway with Europe so far. Well, I've got some trade news to uh, to go off of that, Mike. Canada is hosting a trade-focused meeting here at the end of this month or later this month with 13, quote, like-minded countries. For, two, for a two-day discussion in Ottawa, and the U.S. is not going to be invited because Canada's trade minister said that they aren't. we don't share the same views as these other 13 countries. So they're going to be discussing ways to reform the World Trade Organization, and I believe China is one of the countries they're inviting. The U.S. is not invited, though. That's the key here. Interesting. Hey, President Trump, I know you're probably tuned into the podcast. Listen, for the price of a plane ticket and a hotel room, I'll go up and I'll party crash this deal and I'll walk in there and I'll speak on America's behalf. So you go ahead and write that down. So, okay. so here's later on. I see now the countries that are invited. China isn't one of them, but Australia, Brazil, Chile, the EU, Japan, Kenya, South Korea, Mexico, New Zealand, Norway, Singapore and Switzerland will all be present. Those are quite a few of our top trading partners. Yeah, and of course, I'll be there representing the U.S., whether (laughs) Canada wants it or not. They're too polite to kick me out. This is my theory. Good luck getting in, like, past security and stuff. That's my uh, thought for you. Hey, walk with a purpose. Walk like you know where you're going and people (laughs) let you in anywhere. (laughs) Or just play dumb when they ask, what are you doing? 
Yeah. Oh, well, what do you mean? So I'm not supposed to be here. I'll just say <laughs> A a lot and walk around with a jug of maple syrup and they'll think I'm Canadian. <laughs> Oh, gosh. Well, hey, you know, we're kind of having a little bit of fun today. We had some good news yesterday with uh, regard to the overall economy. The markets are getting stronger. We had unemployment today drop down to 3.7%, Delaney. That's unreal. That is unreal, yeah. Yes. What, is so that the, is, what's the, is that the lowest it's ever been? You know, I, I didn't want to say that because I'm not 100% sure that it is. I haven't seen it reported as the lowest ever, but it is certainly the lowest since I believe at least 1969. Okay. So, yeah, pretty pretty darn good. Yeah. But, so we've got an article here from Reuters. And, of course, I like to stay focused on what's happening in the broader economy. That affects our consumers. That affects the folks that, in particular, are buying those premium cuts of meat. And uh, Reuters has a report. They say after a solid decade of slow growth, small wage improvement, and high unemployment, it finally looks like the U.S. economy is snapping back into an era of 3 to 4% growth, which is great news for those of us in the meat production industry. Mm. It means consumers are going to have more cash. It means wages are going to continue to rise. And it also, of course, means listeners and interest rates are probably going to continue to rise. So, of course, in a tight economic time, it makes sense to call your lender and, you know, lock in some things as far as you can. So are you saying the economy you think is going to get stronger? That's certainly the way it looks. Um, I'm going you know, to uh, play devil's advocate and say I don't think that that's going to happen because of the next news story I have. Oh, gosh. Well, I wish you'd <laughs> uh, not pooped on my parade here, Delaney. <laughs> I'm sorry about it, but the U.S. has hit a a uh, the widest trade gap in six months, uh, largely due to plunging soybean exports. So the uh, yeah. trade deficit widened in August to the biggest in six months, and the gap is has increased 6.4 percent to 53.2 billion dollars, which was revised and up from 50 billion dollars in the previous month. The Commerce Department showed on last Friday that imports rose six-tenths of a percent, but exports fell eight-tenths of a percent, and soybean exports dropped a billion dollars, or 28 percent. Yes. Tariffs and trade wars are bad. They do not do what we want to do. And Delaney, actually, that does not dispel my story, because do you know why one of the main reasons trade deficits grow? Why? Because there's there's two parts to it, right? There's imports, which mm-hmm. grow the trade deficit, and there's exports, which if they shrink, that grows the trade deficit. Right. And so in your case, we're reporting on the drop in soybeans growing the deficit, but we're also seeing increased imports because as people have more money, they go and buy more things. A large trade deficit is actually a sign of a healthy economy. Really? I'm Absolutely. not sure that that makes sense. No, it does. Think about it. When you've got money... Mm-hmm. You go and buy stuff. The only right. time the trade deficit shrinks is when we enter a recession because mm-hmm. we just we hunker down. We don't buy anything. The more stuff we buy, whether it's you know cheap crap from China or expensive <laughs> crap from Germany in the form of BMWs and Mercedes, all of those things grow the trade deficit. Interesting. I'm not sure everyone would agree with that mindset. Um, well, yeah, I mean – a lot of people are wrong all the time, Delaney. That's, that's <laughs> oh, no okay. big deal. I mean, that, that's just a fact. That's what, that's what grows the trade deficit. My interpretation of it being a sign of a good economy is my interpretation. Right. You're right. Maybe people will disagree with that, but they would also be wrong. Uh, okay. Yeah. Oh, I'm, I'm coming with some heat today on this Friday. I tell you what, Delaney. 
All right. I uh, guess you are, Mike. Well, speaking of heat, coffee prices continue to struggle. They have been in a tremendously low price range for almost three years. I mean, it looks kind of like the dairy industry. Coffee is in a period of oversupply. Consumers are drinking less of it, just like Mm -hmm. fluid milk. And so one of the uh, Italian He's a premium CEO of a premium coffee maker, and I'm probably going to mispronounce the name. I think it's Ili Cafe, SPA, is an Italian coffee company. I don't know. Uh, but he said that the industry needs to adapt. And he said there are two different ways we can look at adaption. And I think we can apply this to a lot of agriculture. He says we can adapt like the soda industry. Sugar got cheap. We started making more soda. We started selling it cheaper, and that grew sales for a while because eventually there was a pushback amongst consumers. Or we can look at the wine industry where you never think about basing the price of a bottle of wine on the price of grapes, which is true. I have no idea what the price of grapes are, but when you go to a liquor store, you know, I'm going to spend $7 on my box of Franzia, you know. Oh, yeah, I used to know the price of grapes because I used to work at a winery, but it's been a little while. Yeah, and so I think this is a really good point. It, it of course, implies that some of the growers have a stake in the processing or the mm-hmm. retail end, and they can capture that premium. But if you're a dairy producer who has the capacity to process stuff on the farm, hey, look at selling that premium. Don't look at selling the milk at milk price. Sell the ice cream and make up whatever price you want. If the ice cream's good enough, people are going to pay for it, which I think is a very cool way to think about things. Yeah, I guess it is. Yeah, a little different. A little but, different. Uh, and, and not and certainly not going to work for everybody. And those of us who are small scale producers, you know, might not have a choice to just take whatever the price is. Mm-hmm. But hey, for those of you that can, let's think outside the box a little. Let's do it. Thinking outside of the box leads me into my next topic, and that is on cultured cell meat. So we've mm. uh, we've had a lot of discussion about that. And Secretary Purdue made some comments on Thursday suggesting that the USDA and the FDA are both likely to have joint jurisdiction over the cell-cultured meat sector. So we don't know yet what is going on. This has kind of been a turf battle about who's going to take it over. Um, But he made an interesting comment. He said, quote, The main thing is we don't want this new technology to feel like they've got to go offshore or outside the United States to get a fair regulatory protocol. And Purdue told reporters that on Thursday, that to me seems like an indicator that he's not welcoming cultured meat, but almost, you know, like he's embracing this. Yeah. And, you know, actually, I'm going to give Secretary Purdue some credit here. I hadn't thought about it in that way. I mean, cell cultured meat is, of course, a competitor to what, you know, you and I do on our farms, Delaney, raising delicious, wholesome beef. But at the same time, It is a really high-tech industry, and Mm -hmm. who knows what we're going to learn from it if we keep it here in this country. So that is a delicate balancing act, and and I guess I don't envy uh, Scott Gottlieb or Mm -mm. Secretary Purdue having to put the rules in place for this new industry. I do not either. Well, speaking of meat, I want to throw in one other quick story here that connects to that, I guess loosely connects to it. But the CDC is investigating yet another food outbreak. This time it is a multi-state outbreak of listeria infections that are linked to ready-to-eat deli ham produced by Johnson County hams. So they are under investigation. Four people have been infected so far. I would just watch what I eat. 
because I think yesterday, as I mentioned, we had a JBS food recall. Mm -hmm. Now we have a ham recall. I think I saw something in the news yesterday or the day before about a broccoli recall. Broccoli is always getting recalled, though. I guess. But yeah, on the meat side, that is kind of rare. So folks, mm -hmm. Google up before you hit the grocery store. Make sure what you're buying is safe. 99.9999999% of everything <laughs> we buy is safe. America is the safest food system in the world. But at the same time, you know, use a little caution. Don't yeah, get sick. Right. And hey, while we're talking meat, and this is the third story to kind of build on this theme, the 10th annual, excuse me, Ninth, no, 10th annual Cattle Feeders Hall of Fame banquet is going to be held January 29th in 2019. Of course, that's in conjunction with the uh, National Cattlemen's Beef Association trade show and convention down there in New Orleans. Mm -hmm. And um, I wanted to bring this up because I'm guessing we've got listeners who are going to know one or several of these cattle feeders who have been nominated. And folks, you can vote on who you think ought to be in the Cattle Feeders Hall of Fame if you go to www.cattlefeeders.org backslash vote dash HOF, or really just click on it, and it's got a vote button right there. Here are the nominees. Bill Brandt from the Brandt Company, Bill Foxley from Foxley Cattle Company, Don Opplinger from Opplinger Companies, James Herring from Freonia, and Marshall Jack Reeve of the Reeve Cattle Company. So, folks, if you know any of them, hop up there, and give them a shout out, give them a vote, and uh, you know we'll see who gets nominated or inducted into the Hall of Fame on January 29th. Mike, speaking of NCBA, we better get on it and start planning for NCBA convention this year. It's right around I the corner. I know. It's hard to believe, but with the weather changing, that mm -hmm. means it's time to get together with some of our favorite cattlemen and women across the country. And uh, it'll be fun to be down in New Orleans this year. Well, also with the weather changing, that also means people are changing their diets. And I'm a big pumpkin spice fan, so I'm going to end today's Friday news section with some news about pumpkin spice. Are you the ready for this? basic Friday <laughs> episode ever. Go for it, Delaney. Um, so pumpkin spice as a spice. Their archaeologists recently found signs that they think it is a 3,500-year-old spice because they were doing some whatever digging or archaeologist excavating. Is that the right word I would use? Yeah, I think. yep. So they were um, on an archaeologist site on a, in a small island area, the Banda Islands near central Indonesia, and this nutmeg residue was found on a ceramic pot basically and it was estimated to be about 3,500 years old which is 2,000 years older than the previously known use of the spice nutmeg which also is in pumpkin spice and some of those other ones so you know seems that like is people really been, cool yeah people I, have been I was reading that, that article forever. as well and what struck me was yeah the pumpkin spice is interesting they found it there on the pot and then next to the pot was a pair of stone Ugg boots and then Stop a it. black North Face jacket right next to it. I thought altogether that was fantastic. <laughs> Who would have guessed that there were sorority girls around 3,500 years ago? Mike, stop. Okay. What, if, what if we have some listeners that like pumpkin spice? I know plenty of men that like pumpkin flavored things. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think it's great. Whatever Just, uh, it is makes you happy. Life is short. Get your pumpkin while you can. Yesterday for breakfast, I ate pumpkin bread with pumpkin-flavored Cheerios. And how was it? Have <laughs> you turned on, orange? I was on pumpkin heaven high. It was good. I like pumpkin-flavored things. The fall, like right now, is the perfect time to eat all those things. Well, yeah, that's when you get pumpkins, Delaney. That's why I they know. do that flavor now. Thank you. 
You're welcome. That's why I'm here. <laughs> All that being said, Delaney, should we jump into the markets before we talk to our good pal, Ed Valley? Let's do it, Mike. All right, folks, and our markets are brought to us by our other good pals over at the Zaner Group. Remember, give them a holler. It's not too early to start thinking about next year. Give our friend Ted a shout. You can reach Ted Seifert and the gang at 312-277-0050 or on the web at zaner.com. And we've got green on the screen to finish out the week in the grain markets. Looking at corn, the D's contract up three quarters of a cent at 368 and a quarter. The March also up three quarters to close at 380 even. In soybeans, November, nice rally today up nine and three quarter cents finish at 869 even january up nine and a half closed at 882 and a quarter and chicago wheat even got in on the action the december contract up three cents at 521 the march up three and a half to finish at 540 and a quarter looking over on the livestock side we've got mixed trade in the live cattle complex with the october up 17 and a half cents at 11380 the December down 22.5 to close at 118.15. Cash trade so far this week hovering around 112, most of it in Iowa. In feeder cattle, the October contract up 80 cents at 157.77.50. The November up 47.5, closed at 158.22.50. And in lean hogs, the October contract up 70 cents at 68.20 with the December up $2.22.5, finishing the week at 57.55. And of course, we can't forget about our friends in the dairy industry. In class three milk, the October contract dropped a penny to close at 15.81, while November was up four at 16.05. And without further ado, let's kick it over to Delaney and Ed Valley's conversation about what to expect with weather coming up. Well, for today's Friday episode, we're going to be having a discussion with Ed Valley of Valley Weather Consulting. Ed, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with me today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Ed, let's break it down here. What's going on in weather right now? I mean, a lot of producers have been held up because of wet weather. We've seen some varied weather across the, across the plains and across the U.S. What's going on? Yeah, it's it's been a remarkable pattern that's set up over the last, you know, give or take two or three weeks. Even going back to the beginning of September, we've had a lot of rain across the Midwest and into the Ohio Valley, including a lot of Iowa, a lot of Illinois, Indiana, and Ohio. And what's causing this is we're, we're seeing the pattern um, flip around a little bit. We're seeing a lot of cold air coming into the prairies and into the plains and at the same time we're seeing a lot of warm air surge up from the gulf of mexico and and from the southeast and you know i'm down in in fayetteville north carolina it was 92 degrees yesterday Mm, wow Uh, so so it's it's a really really dynamic weather pattern and the simplest way to to explain it is when you have a clashing of two air masses right over the ag belt that is a, a perfect recipe for heavy rainfall and we're starting to see that now and we've We've seen it a lot, um, you know, over the last few weeks with some places in Iowa from customers that have, have chatted with me reporting six to 10 inches of rain in the last 30 days. Yeah, gosh, that's a lot of weather and that's a lot of wet weather that farmers don't want to have right now. And I hate to ask it, but are we setting ourselves up to see this pattern continued over harvest season or has the, the rain kind of come and now we're moving on to a different weather pattern? Yeah, that's a that's a really good question and a question a lot of people have been asking me. And unfortunately, I think it does continue at least for another seven to ten days. 
Um, so obviously, when we when we have these clashing of air masses, and we see all of this rain on top of all the rain we saw last month, it sets us up to to have some issues. Obviously, right? Mm-hmm. And I do think I do think it will continue for about another ten days. Uh, but there is some sign here towards the middle and latter part of October that we may actually uh, dry out a little bit. So that will help tremendously, you know, especially in those areas that are kind of borderline on, on going right now, you know, because some places are a little too wet, some places are really wet. Um, but especially in those areas that are kind of borderline, I think those areas will be able to go here by the middle and end of October. Ed, are we setting ourselves up yet for an El Nino weather pattern? We are. And that's kind of part of the reason why this pattern is is doing what it's doing. We're seeing a lot of conflicting signals in some of our climate data. And that's a slow transition from we were in this La Nina pattern, which led to the really warm and wet uh, summer we had. And as we continue to transition out of this La Nina into an El Nino, I think that is going to be our main driving force this winter. Uh, And that could extend into next growing season. Obviously, given the lead time, there's still some uncertainty with respect to that. Yeah, absolutely. And that was going to be my next question. And so with that in mind, if we're setting ourselves up here in the midst of an El Nino pattern, what does that mean for the winter and then the coming spring months? Yeah. So the the main feature that I see with a, an El Nino pattern is it's a much wetter, wetter southern tier of the United States. So that means if you're down in the southern plains, a lot of winter wheat areas, southeastern croplands, those areas, I think, are going to have a cooler, but also wetter than normal winter. So that, that can certainly help a lot of the, the southern plains that they've had some pretty good moisture lately. Um, and with winter wheat planting ongoing, I, I do think as we get into the, to the winter here, I think those areas will continue to see a wetter pattern. Um, but further north, for a lot of the Midwest, the Ohio Valley, and even into the plains and prairies, it's typically a little bit warmer of a pattern and a little bit drier of a pattern, which is a big change compared to what we've seen in, in past years. We've had a lot of wet springs the last few springs. You know, it's still early, but I, I think this this time around, with, with the pattern changing towards El Nino, that actually favors, at least in the winter and, and early spring, some drier risks along with some warmer risks. So it's, it might be a little bit different than what we've seen over the last few winters. I want to look out even longer term here, Ed, and talk about next summer. Um, we've often heard from producers and a couple other folks that we couldn't possibly have another great crop season again next year. We've had so many good seasons, growing seasons here over the last couple of years. Are you seeing that long term for the 2019 growing season? That's a really good question, and it's a really complicated question to answer because think about it this way when we when we think about what, what is our El Nino or La Nina reading going to be six months from now or nine months from now in, in this case there's a lot of uncertainty with how accurate the, the the models and the data we use can be at that lead time mm-hmm. so there is there is some uncertainty with with how far out it is but if we do begin to develop this this El Nino that would suggest some potentially cooler risks compared to the last few seasons we've had. Um, and with respect to moisture, it's, it's, of course, very dependent on how the, the pattern evolves. But that could be a wetter look 
uh, especially the further south you go, too. So it's, there's definitely some, some signs that we could be in for uh, a weak El Nino-type summer, which would basically mean a lot of wet weather across the southern United States and then, you know, maybe a little bit drier once you get up into the Dakotas and then up into the prairies as well. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I want to switch tracks here for just a second because you're a weather guy. You live in North Carolina. You guys just had a huge weather event that happened there. Uh, yeah. ha- break it down for me. What, uh, what have, what weather-wise, what have folks been facing in the aftermath here of Hurricane Florence? Yeah, that's, that's another great question. And, and it's, it's funny. Along the coast, it's been pretty rough going. It's been a lot of recovery, a lot of flooding that they've had to fix up and wind damage and whatnot. But across the interior, a lot of my customers in the soybean areas and cotton areas of uh, North and South Carolina, um, they had a lot of rain. They had anywhere from six to 10 inches of rain uh, during the storm, but the winds were manageable. They were, all, they were only 30, 40 miles an hour or so. So I think the, the damage with respect to the crop is a little bit lower than what could have been if the storm was a little bit stronger. Um, but still, I mean, getting six to eight inches of rain when you're trying to get stuff out of the ground mm-hmm. is certainly not ideal. Um, so a lot of, you know, we're strong down here. We, we can recover pretty quickly. Uh, but overall, I, I think the first kind of reports coming out of, of everything, I think, have been a little bit more positive than initially thought, which is great news. Uh, but certainly, yeah, a lot of places are still recovering from flooding and, and even some wind damage. And when you look at crops in particular in that part of the country, Ed, are folks able to get into the fields yet? Have have all the crops been completely wiped out? Yep. So right now, we, we've been very lucky in the southeast because we've had a lot of really nice, warm, dry weather since the storm has occurred. So with that being said, a lot of guys are starting to get back out there now. Um, and a lot of guys kind of rush to get their corn out before the storm. Uh, but a lot of guys are, are just getting back in now this week and really getting back on track mm-hmm. from where they were prior to the storm. So it's, it's been a process, but, but we're getting there. Have you heard any remarks on yields for farmers if the weather has dropped yields at all? So I, I'm obviously a, a meteorologist. Absolutely. And the, the, customers that I, the, the customers that I've talked to uh, haven't really commented on that quite yet because they're still trying to assess, you know, what kind of damage that they might have. Uh, but I, I think from what my customers have told me, a lot of guys were very, very high on the cotton, soybean, and mm-hmm. tobacco crops across the southeast. So hopefully, you know, we'll we'll get some of that information here in the next few weeks, and and hopefully the storm didn't do too much damage. Yeah, hopefully not. I know a lot of us have been thinking of folks out your way. Ed, are there any more hurricanes or, I guess, indicators that there are any other big hurricanes Mm -hmm. coming this season? Yeah, we're getting into the time of the year where, obviously, September is is our peak of the hurricane season. And as we get into October, they, they typically lessen in number. And But you can still get a pretty strong storm in, in October, especially with how warm the mm-hmm. waters are right now. And there is some indication about in the 6- to 10-day period, so that puts us closer to the middle of October, that there could be a storm potentially developing in the eastern Gulf of Mexico. And strength and, and intensity and, and track are still obviously very up in the air. Uh, but that could lead to some additional rainfall 
for the Southeast and Gulf Coast where they really don't need it, you know. So mm-hmm. that's kind of what I'm seeing. I don't think it's necessarily a really great hurricane type type pattern coming up, but I think it's definitely something we're going to have to watch here as we get through the middle of the month. Ed, how closely are you watching international weather conditions, specifically those in South America? Pretty close, yeah, absolutely. We, we have um, a lot of customers who, who trade futures and options, and, and we're very in tune with, with the South American pattern. And it's looking like here, at least through the beginning of the growing season here, we've had some pretty favorable moisture mm-hmm. across a lot of Brazil, getting down into northern Argentina. We do think things are going to dry out a little bit down in Argentina here over the next few weeks. And honestly, that's probably not a bad thing because we're starting to get planting done here in northern Argentina, and that will slowly push southward in time. Uh, and right now, I, I do think, at least through the first half of the growing season, things are looking pretty favorable. So, you know, after the tough safrina crop that a lot of places had last year, I think some places are, are going to start with a much better foundation than we had last year. And do you see Argentina still sitting in a drought or drier period at this point in time, or they have, or have they moved past that yet? So I, I think it's it's going to be a better season than last year, in my opinion. Uh, we are starting, like I said, we're, we're transitioning from La Nina mm-hmm. to El Nino, and that La Nina was a big driver in, in what caused that drought last year. Um, so as long as we can continue the transition, I think the forecast looks okay. Uh, but it is something to watch, which is the big thing that a lot of my customers are watching right now. Absolutely. And, and I guess – Obviously, producers can't control the weather, although I'm sure they would love to. But is there anything Absolutely. that a producer should be keeping in mind in the midst of us transitioning from a La Nina to an El Nino year? Is there anything they could be doing or should be keeping in mind? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I think the biggest thing, you know, a lot of producers just naturally watch the weather because it's so important to their everyday operations. Uh, but I think monitoring that transition from La Nina to El Nino um, is really important because the predictability of it isn't necessarily that high. Um, so as we get closer and we ingest more observations, that helps us kind of solidify our forecast on the weather side of things. So I think just monitoring that transition will help kind of get a feel for the entire forecast moving into the winter, both in South America and across the U.S. Awesome. Ed, well, I really appreciate your time today. And if folks want to find you on Twitter or elsewhere, where should they head? Yeah, so my website is valleywx.com, and my Twitter is at edvalleywx. Awesome. Ed, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Well, again, a big thank you to Ed Valley. We encourage you to follow him on Twitter or ask him your questions if you have your own specific weather questions, because Mike and I are definitely not weather experts. No, no, I can tell you what it is doing outside, and that's about the extent of it. Okay, well, good. That reminds me of Mean Girls. When Have you ever watched Mean Girls? I have. When Karen is like, there's a 50% chance of rain, and it's raining already. (laughs) (laughs) Well, my feeling is there's always a 50% chance of rain, because it either will rain or it won't. I'm kind of the same way. Yeah, uh, I've got the same feeling with the lottery. Heidi says, why do you buy a Powerball ticket? And I say, Heidi, because there's a one in two chance I'll win. I'll either win or I won't. (laughs) 
Anyhow, if listeners want to catch up on more of our zany and hilarious antics, Delaney, where should they go to do that? Oh, I like that lead-in, Mike. They can head to agnewsdaily.com. We've got all our previous episodes on there. They can also interact with us on Facebook and on Twitter by searching for at agnewsdaily. With that, should we let the people go? Let's let them go. 